0: Which Saul Bellow do we encounter in this latest major biography? Sam Tannenhaus, a familiar name and voice, will be here to talk about Zachary Leder's new book, The Life of Saul Bellow, to fame and fortune. His
1: intellect is so powerful and the prose so
0: torrential that it has this very large Shakespearean feel to it. What is acquaintance rape and how does the justice system deal with it? Emily Bazelon will be here to talk about Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a Small Town, the latest book from John Krakauer.
2: He is looking at the kinds of cases that are more typical on college campuses, but still, I think, relatively unfamiliar and sometimes difficult for the rest of us, regular people, to grapple with and understand.
0: Alexandra Alter will report from the publishing world, and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. So we have a total newcomer to the podcast joining us now, Sam Tannenhaus, some of you may remember. Hi, Sam.
1: Pamela, great to be here. It's been so long.
0: I know, the roles are switched here. Um we're going to talk about something you know very well, um, Saul Bellow. Sam reviews this week Zachary Leader's new biography, The Life of Saul Bellow to Fame and Fortune. 1915 to 1964. This is the first in a planned two-volume biography?
1: Yes. This one concludes with the publication of Herzog, which is probably still Bellow's most famous novel and the one that really did bring him fame and fortune, as leader says. Um, it's a very detailed at times excessively so, a uh, study of Bellow's life that I guess is just going to track every twist. And It was a long life. Bellow lived to be almost 90.
0: In Dwight Garner's uh, review of this same book, which just ran in the paper, he characterized Bellow as the greatest novelist of the 20th century.
1: Pamela, did he say greatest novelist or greatest writer? And I, I'm not nitpicking because he might mean one thing rather than the other. And the reason I ask is... James Wood, very distinguished critic, has been saying for some time that Bellow was the greatest American prose writer of the 20th century. And there is a case to be made for that, I think. Whether he's the greatest novelist, I think, is altogether a different question. He had a lot of craft and technique that we can overlook um, because his intellect is so powerful and the prose so torrential and varied that it has this very large Shakespearean feel to it. But Bella would probably himself say... He's not the best narrator, not the best storyteller, not the best describer of changes and transformations and characters. And those are things we often identify with great novelists.
0: It's interesting because we were talking about this uh, at the Book Review yesterday um, and the distinction we made was not between novelist and writer, but we thought maybe – the meaning was more the post-war era because, of course, when you think about the earliest twentieth-century American writers, there's there's a bit of competition from people like Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Wharton. And-
1: yes, I mean, I think in my piece, I identify Bellow quite. Specifically, it's a mid-century giant, which he was. An interesting thing, though, uh, for those who are interested in years of birth, and I am. I'm a biographer myself. Bellow is actually closer historically in time to Hemingway than he is to Philip Roth. Why do
0: people always lump the two of them together, Bellow and Roth?
1: Well, Bellow himself had a very famous comment about the two of them and Bernard Malamud, who is the least read of the three today, but when I was young, was – considered the equal of the two. He said we're the Hart, Schaffner, and Marx of American literature, meaning we're like the three Jewish guys. Um, The novel got more or less, the novelist art form, that is, transformed or transfigured in these early mid-century years, right after the Second World War, by a number of ethnic writers, not only Jewish ones. Bellow was a huge champion of Ralph Ellison. Mm -hmm. So note to all of those out there who may think Bellow was Mr. politically incorrect. He was the champion of African-American writers, not only Ellison, but also James Baldwin. He wrote uh, proposals uh, in support of uh, Baldwin's getting foundation money. Bellow was very big on the idea of the novels being remade ethnically Mm -hmm. by immigrants. One way of looking at Bellow, it seems odd because he became so rich and distinguished, won the Nobel Prize and all the rest, is he's probably the first truly great... Possible exception of Henry Roth and one or two others. But on the biggest scale, truly great immigrant writers in America, Mm -hmm. especially Jewish writers. And so that's why Roth and Bellow got pushed together. They're not that far separated in age, but they're definitely different generations.
0: Did he think of himself as a Jewish novelist or did he bristle at that categorization?
1: It depended on what day of the week and who was doing the characterizing. If um, he was getting attacked... Or criticized, he was very thin skinned by uh, writers he thought were anti Semitic. Then it was, guess what? I'm a Jewish writer and I'm better than you are. If it was the Hadassah surrounding him, Bella would say, Why are you insisting I'm Jewish? I'm an American writer. It was all those things at once, and it really would change almost in this kind of chameleonic way, depending on whom he was talking to and how he was feeling that day. he was kind of all these things bound up in once.
0: He's also from Chicago. Yes. But to what extent is he a Midwesterner or a Chicago?
1: I think very much so. And that's one reason I think you and your shrewdness thought to ask me to do the book is I'm very big on Midwestern writers. And we have a great Midwestern tradition to say that Bella was conscious of Hemingway, as I, I said in this review, is not Just a shot in the dark. They both are from the same part of the world, Mm -hmm. Hemingway from Oak Park, which is a suburb of Chicago. Bellow, though, actually born just outside Montreal, was raised in Chicago. There's a wonderful moment in Humboldt's Gift. It's the most exciting and absorbing and fun of the novels. It's the one that got him the Nobel uh, published in 1975. There's a great exchange between Bellow and Humboldt, who's modeled on his friend Delmore Schwartz, the poet. And Schwartz says to him, oh, you have those nice Midwestern manners, Charlie. Charlie is the Bellow character. Bellow had that Midwestern all americanness ness about him it was one of the reasons he was so charming and so enamored of the middle American style. What we forget, the most obvious thing about his breakthrough novel, The Adventures of Augie March, which was a kind of latter-day Huckleberry Finn, Mm -hmm. is that the first three words in the title are exactly the same. It's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and The Adventures of Augie March. Because he came from Chicago, the stockyards, the great disparities of wealth and poverty, the giant immigrant populations, the extraordinary lakes, it's almost like an ocean, the great variations in temperature and heat and all the rest and the centrality of it, that gave him his purchase as an American writer. Whereas you have uh, one of his very rivalrous contemporaries, slightly younger Norman Mailer, who also wanted to be a great American writer in the way Bellow was, was very um, competitive with Bellow. Because he was from Brooklyn and went to Harvard, Mm -hmm. Mailer somehow got slipped into a narrower category than Bellow, who came right out of the Midwest.
0: Obviously, uh, he is a fascinating subject for biographers. Um, This is not the first Bellow biography. Um, Before we talk about the other major biography by James Atlas, what is it that you think makes him such an interesting subject, at least for writers, for biographers?
1: There are a number of reasons. First, the sheer prodigality of the work. He was – there's a great phrase Cynthia Ozig has. She says, well, there are prolific writers over here and there are prodigious writers over there. And Bello was prodigious. Biographers are drawn to him because his papers apparently include thousands of unpublished pages that are as superb as anything he ever published. And so biographers get drawn into that. He had a great mind and that's why novelists are fascinated by him. There was a wonderful obituary published on the New York Times op-ed page, and not an obituary, an appreciation by one of the greatest living novelists, Ian McEwen, who talks about just the brilliance of Bellows' insights. He doesn't talk about character and plot and story or anything else. He quotes some of the same lines that I do near the beginning of the, the review uh, where – Herzog is thinking about history and what it means to live in a post-industrial world. Bellow was really, really good at that. He had a genius for penetrating and stripping away the life, the inner lives of intellectuals. And writers, many of them are intellectuals themselves. So Bellow was fascinating for that reason. Also, what we forget today, and the younger novelist got this, particularly in England, is he broke all the rules. That's the paradox of Bellow seeming like, in the phrase, the old white guy now, is in his day, he was the iconoclast. He broke the icons. He vanquished the idea of style in literature and replaced it with voice. And we are so used to the idea of voice and fiction, we don't realize when Bellow first came along, even his greatest admirers talked about his style. Mm-hmm. When it, It's not style, it's the voice of the writer. So this makes an originator and that's why other writers admire him so much.
0: Who do you think his heirs are today among contemporary novelists? Uh, That's a
1: really, really tough question because no one sounds like him one of his admirers, and now she's not so young anymore, Cynthia Ozick, who I think came the closest to actually writing in Bellow's own voice slash style, said um, she also was comparing Bellow and Hemingway and said Hemingway was the originator of the style that everybody imitated and Bellow created a style that nobody imitates. In the end, maybe just doesn't really redound to, uh, to Bellow's advantage, but one of his great Followers, I think someone who learned a great deal from him is on your cover. Martin Amos is in a sense kind of a British uh, Saul Bellow. Use, drawing on all the resources of the language the same way. Uh, just for the interest of listeners, a contemporary writer who reveres him is Dave Eggers. He said Herzog is the most beautifully written novel he's read. I think he said something like that. Um, so there are writers out there who are absorbing and learning from Bellow. Salman Rushdie, I think, mm-hmm. is a Bolovian. There are many of them. You won't necessarily feel or see Bellow in the work when you read it, but Bellow is the lodestar for them.
0: Let's bring it down a notch and talk specifically about this biography. Um, it, your criticism is pretty pointed in the review. What does Leader do well and, and what does he not succeed at? He's
1: a good researcher. And he has turned up some interesting material, particularly an unpublished memoir written by Bellows' second wife. Sasha. Sasha or Sandra, known by those two names and others, who was a very interesting person. How many wives did he have? Five altogether. That's another reason he's interesting to write about. Um, He married many times and he was, in the old phrase, he was a ladies' man and almost couldn't help himself. Uh, Sandra Bellow turns out to have been quite a brilliant observer of the faculty and literary life in the 1950s. She was only 21 when she met Bellow, and Bellow was already on the verge of fame. He was in his late 30s, and uh, The Adventures of Augie March was just about to be published, and she was the classic 50s, literary girl, as they would call them back then. She'd come from Bennington mm-hmm. and was working as a receptionist at Partisan Review. It's almost comical. But she was very sharp and shrewd. She's the mother of Adam Bellow, the publisher, with Sandra, And he has written about her. And her battles with Saul Bellow were epic, and they formed the basis of Herzog, probably his greatest novel, a comic novel, but based very much on their relationship and her betrayal of him with one of Bellow's best friends. So Leder's possession, and <laughs> thankfully his uh, extensive uh, quotation from that manuscript, he quotes it all the time, he's really good. He's also good on Bellow in Europe. Uh, Zachary Leder— I've never met and wrote quite a fine biography of Kingsley Amos, is an American who's lived in England for many, many years. And he actually has more connection to the British literary scene than to the American one. Hmm. And I think that leads to part of the trouble with the book. Bellow is so American a writer, you have to see him in his American context.
0: He met Bellow on one occasion, right? And he makes a lot of this. He does. And
1: it's a surprising... In a way, kind of impressive anecdote because most of us – I would not put this in a book, I don't think. He tells us he met Bellow once in 1972 when Bellow was receiving an honorary degree at Harvard and Leder, a graduate student there, was invited to a garden party. And Bellow was always exquisitely dressed and very handsome and a celebrity at this point, was surrounded by a circle of admirers, Leder writes. And leader who liked Bellows Fiction, joined the circle and he says – he almost seems to boast. He says, I don't remember a word he said. Now, that's a candid admission. But I think many of us, if at an impressionable young age, met a writer that we felt – invested in that. Invested
0: enough to write a two-part biography of...
1: (laughs) We might at least pretend we remembered what he said. So it's an odd anecdote. Mm -hmm. No, I think what he means to say there is Bellow had a kind of hypnotic effect on people. He was extraordinarily charismatic and previous biographers like James Atlas were actually drawn in by the spell of Bellow and then were expelled by him. And Leader wants to say, that's not a problem for me. I was not a part of his world. I didn't seek to enter it. But his not entering that world is what happens to the reader when you read the book. And, and Dwight Garner said this too. You don't feel that he's – that Leader himself – is at home with Bellow, that -hmm. that he understands him, that that he's excited by the work. He respects it. He knows that Bellow is a great writer, but he doesn't seem excited by the work, by the life, and doesn't convey that especially well. He really gets lost in the details.
0: You and other um, critics at this point have compared this book um, or or characterized it as a reaction to James Atlas's 2000 biography of Saul Bellow. What was that biography like and, and how is Leaders different? Well, what
1: I think people will discover is that James Atlas's biography, which was highly praised by some and intensely criticized, if not denounced by others, is actually a superb piece of biographical craft. It moves with great swiftness. It's deeply researched. Um, Much of Leader's research is Atlas's, and and he's very fair about that. Mm -hmm. He cites Atlas a lot. Atlas is from Chicago. He knows the milieu. He's actually from Evanston, Illinois, which is a northern suburb, but grew up in greater Chicago. His family... uh, lived in some of the same areas the Bellow family did. He knows that world. He knows the feel of Chicago. And he knows the New York intellectual scene that Bellow later became a part of. So it feels intimate and Mm -hmm. close in a way that Leader's book does not.
0: What about in terms of the literary criticism within the biography? Because Atlas is is a very strong literary critic. Is Leader as well? Does he offer insight into the novels themselves? I was a little
1: disappointed there. That's where I felt... Leader, though very respectful of Bellow, doesn't really have an intuition or feel for what he's doing. Literary criticism is one of the strangest arts. All arts criticism is odd because though it feels to us very analytical when we read it and very precise in its judgments, it's really a series of intuitions, of leaps that uh, the critic makes. In Leader's case, he is diligent, he has read the drafts of the books. Uh, that is the original manuscripts. Bellow mm-hmm. was a, a fanatical reviser, reviser in the mode of D.H. Lawrence, and he learned it from Lawrence. D.H. Uh, Lawrence, who was a hero of Bellow's, and Bellow both did when they revised, was not to red pencil lines on the page and and scrawl in better phrases. They would throw the whole book out and start all over again. Wow. And Bellow would do this five or six times. Your wonderful colleague, Elida Becker, at the book review retyped one of Bellow's greatest manuscripts, Mr. Sandler's Planet, when she worked it at the Viking Press. She got the revision that Bellow had done maybe when it was in its final page proof and had to be entirely redone. So there's a kind of improvisatory quality to it. Uh, So Lido has worked through all that material, but he doesn't seem to have a feel for what Bellow's really trying to say. Whereas Jim Atlas, though he is probably too critical of Bellow in places and transfers the novels too much back to the life, um, has a better sense of what the great themes are and also of where Bellow fits in to the larger American story. Bellow's tricky because on the one hand, he absorbed a tremendous number of European influences, particularly Russian. On the other, he was steeped in American fiction. Um for instance, it's James Atlas who points out that the famous funeral scene in Seize the Day where Tommy Wilhelm, and you know Seize the Day, Pamela, Tommy Wilhelm goes to the funeral parlor at of a stranger and weeps. Mm-hmm. And it's this like horrifically comic scene and people who were there for the funeral say, well, he must be the brother. He looks so, so shaken up. He doesn't know who this person is. It's, it's death and uh, a funeral turned into comedy. Well, it's Atlas who points out that Bellow actually took some of that scene from Dreiser, uh, Theodore Dreiser's novel, Jenny Gerhard, one of hmm. his forgotten, wonderful early novels. That's the kind of command Atlas has over the material. Whereas what Leader will do is work through close readings as if Bellow might, were a British novelist or a French novelist and not so much an American
3: one
0: but some people felt at the time that Atlas was sort of focused too much on his personal life and was too critical of Bellow or yes and Leder is not that's right
1: although what's odd about it is you get almost exactly the same picture of Bellow the kindness the cruelty the wit the thin skin quality the mistreatment of his many wives none of that really feels any different i think he grasps just how fine the work is sometimes he feels a little vindictive or rather as if he has to cut Bellow down to size. And I think that's what began to grate for some critics in Atlas's book, even though the harshest critics say James Atlas's pages on Chicago are wonderful. They're miraculous. They almost read like Bellow himself.
0: What would you say is the best Bellow novel? And is that the one that you would recommend to you know people new to Bellow to start off with? The book
1: that I enjoyed the most was Humboldt's Gift. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is it feels freer than some of the others. Bellow was a virtuosic performer on the page. Uh, he was very much uh, an admirer of James Joyce. And the verbal richness is at times overwhelming. In Humboldt's Gift, he relaxes a little bit. And it tells two interesting stories I'll describe very briefly. It's narrated by a stand-in for Bellow as his Books often are named Charles Citrine, who's a very famous, successful Chicago writer. The book was published in 1975 when Bella was 60. So Citrine is essentially himself. So it tells the story of Citrine in Chicago driving his Mercedes and hanging out with gangsters and all the rest, which is very uh, stimulating and interesting. And he alternates that with reminiscences of his time, mainly in New York, but also in Princeton with Bellow's great friend Delmore Schwartz, who is this extraordinarily gifted uh, poet who was also bipolar, as we would now say. And the term wasn't even in use in the 70s. Manic depressive, mm-hmm. they would say that. And I noticed as I reread just how exquisitely careful Bellow is in giving you a picture of a bipolar personality. The greatest bellow is observer. He called himself a first-class noticer. He's a tremendous observer of physical details and such. The interweaving of those two stories, the successful Chicago writer and the failed tragic poet a generation earlier, ends up being a kind of gigantic epic poem about the costs ambitions, the sorrows of being a truly serious writer in America at the height of American opulence and success, the American century. So it's a very powerful book, but it's also fun to read in a way that some of the others aren't necessarily. So that's the one. It comes later. If you want to be diligent, you'll work your way through chronologically from Dangling Man, published in 1944, all the way through Ravelstein, which some people love. Uh, his novel about Alan Bloom, his great friend. But Humboldt's Gift is the one that felt the richest to me when I reread them.
0: All right, we're talking about Humboldt's Gift and also about Saul Bellow and the life of Saul Bellow to fame and fortune, Zachary Leader's new biography, with Sam Tannenhaus. Sam, it is such a pleasure to have you here. I'm sure that our listeners have missed you very much, and so I hope that you'll come back. I'm a microphone hogger
1: from way back, Pamela, <laughs> and I had to, had to make good on it.
0: Well, it's been a huge treat. Thank you again.
1: My pleasure.
0: Alexander Alter is here with Notes from the Publishing World. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. We're actually going to do Notes from the Theater World, aren't we? That's right. I
3: thought we could change it up this week and talk about what's happening on Broadway. And um, as everyone knows, the Tony nominations were announced this week, and a number of the top contending plays are actually adapted from books. You know, I thought this was sort of interesting to look at these plays and to see why they translate so well to the stage. One of them is Fun Home, which is an adaptation of Alison Bechdel's graphic memoir, which is about her coming out as a lesbian and also discovering that her father, who commits suicide, is gay. Um, that play received multiple nominations for Best Musical and Best Actress in a Musical. Miss Bechdel is a cartoonist who was also awarded the MacArthur last year, MacArthur Genius Grant, so she's having a pretty good run lately. Does there So. Exactly. Another play that got a lot of nominations was The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which is adapted from a 2003 novel by Mark Haddon. It's about a British boy who's sort of a savant and perhaps on the Asperger's spectrum who investigates the disappearance of his neighbor's dog. And this was nominated for Best Play and Best Leading Actor in a Play for. Alex Sharp's performance. And then one of our favorites coming from Book World. That's right. Wolf Hall parts one and two was adapted for the stage by Mike Poulton. And it's a production of the Royal Shakespeare Company. It was nominated for Best Play for Best Leading Actor in a Play for Ben Miles Performance. And although it was adapted by Mike Poulton, um, I managed to sit down with Hilary Mantel, the author of Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. She was in town sort of getting the play set up. She's been incredibly involved In the production, she was actually writing new lines for the American production. She said they had to cut about 15 minutes and sort of patch over those gaps. She was at every performance. She's been to, I think, 60 of the performances. Um, She's developed a very close relationship with Ben Miles, who plays... Thomas Cromwell, her sort of anti-hero slash hero. I thought you were going to
0: say that she just developed a very close relationship with the ushers or something.
3: (laughs) Probably, too. And it was great to see her at the performance. You know, people were coming up to her. She was sort of this celebrity figure. Um, I was interested to talk to her about her involvement in the performance, because as you know, she's working on part three of this trilogy, which is about Thomas Cromwell, the hand to King Henry and his rise from being a blacksmith's son to this incredibly powerful position in the British court. that she's working on part 3 now that she has this living kind of figure for Thomas Cromwell Ben Miles the actor he's been influencing her Third book, he's been giving her plot ideas. She'll bounce things off of him and say, "What would Cromwell do?" And he has some answers. So it's sort of interesting to see not just the first two books get adapted for the stage, but the stage adaptations are actually now influencing the end of the trilogy, which I'm very excited
0: for. I wonder if that happened to J.K. Rowling when she was working on Harry Potter that she saw these sort of film incarnations of her characters. Such it? a
3: I know it's so interesting when that happens. I've you know I I'll think ask her
0: next time we yes, have coffee. Yes, I
3: think next time I see her. I'll certainly bring that up. But although this doesn't connect to the Tonys, but another incredibly popular adaptation that um, is on the stage right now is, of course, Hamilton, which was adapted from Ron Chernow's best-selling biography of Alexander Hamilton. Um, while Wolf Hall was an incredibly faithful adaptation, you know, the characters were rendered sort of perfectly the way they appeared in the book. This is a little bit looser. It's a hip-hop musical, so it's a little more creative. Um, but it's been gathering a ton of attention and praise. It's doing well critically and commercially. And everyone from Gay Talese to Madonna has been flocking to see this show. Although
0: apparently she texted through the whole thing. She was apparently texting. And this was quite
3: upsetting. to.
0: The... <laughs> well, you we can all text during Hamilton when it comes to Broadway in July.
3: That's right. Exactly.
0: You know, one of my favorite musicals from last season, which is has sadly closed, but the soundtrack is available, was also based on a book, The Bridges of Madison County, the The amazing musical, not necessarily the amazing book, but now Kelly O'Hara, which was who was so incredible in that show, is in The King and I. Which you could also say is kind of very indirectly based on a book. That's true. All right, thanks, Alexander. Thanks for having me. Emily Bazelon joins us now. This week, she reviews John Krakauer's new book, Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town. Hi, Emily. Hi, Pamela. So your review of this, I have to say, was not an overwhelmingly positive review. Um, it's a really complicated issue and a surprising one for John Krakauer. How did he get into this subject?
2: Krakauer says at the outset of his book that he got to know a young woman who told him and his wife that she had been raped um, a couple of times by people she knew. And he realized that he didn't know anything about acquaintance rape, or sometimes it's called date rape. And in setting out to learn about it, he was really horrified by the trauma that some women experience. And I think that led him to this story about Missoula and a series of damning allegations against the police department and the prosecutor's office, and to some degree, the University of Montana, about how they were mishandling rape complaints.
0: All right. Before we go into the subject, just for people who aren't used to hearing Krakauer's name in this context, he is the author of Into the Wild, of Into Thin Air, Under the Banner of Heaven, um, which was his book about Mormonism. And you say in your review that of all the books he's written, this one has the most in common with the book on Mormonism. Why is that?
2: I'm a big Krakauer fan. Um, And I think Under the Banner of Heaven is the book of his that is also written from a place of outrage. In my view, Missoula, this new book, has a similar sense of distress, particularly about sex and how women are treated during sex um, or in relation to sex that is driving it.
0: So he doesn't write the story of the girl who he met who got him interested in the subject of rape and how the justice system handles it. Instead, he tells the story of of five rape cases that took place in the city of Missoula?
2: Yes, that's right. And so there are a variety of cases. A few of them involve football players. It seemed like there was a particular problem At this period of time, we're talking about between 2010 and 2012, where members of the football team were being accused of really mistreating women in a sexual way. And there were a bunch of different allegations against the team, and Krakauer digs into some of them.
0: It sounds like what they have in common is that they are all what he calls acquaintance rape.
2: Yes, that's right. And I think to Krakauer's credit, he is looking at the kinds of cases that are more typical on college campuses, but still, I think, relatively unfamiliar and sometimes difficult for the rest of us, regular people, to grapple with and understand. Um, sometimes there is alcohol involved in these um, allegations, although not always. And there are kind of a variety of cases in the sense that um, – So the women involved all knew these men, but then the particular facts and circumstances of the allegations are different, and the outcomes of the cases are different as well. One man is a convicted criminal, goes to prison, other people get off. And so Krakauer is looking at those different outcomes and questioning them. Now,
0: is acquaintance rape different from date rape, or is that a new term?
2: I think it is not a super new term, but somewhat different in the sense that, well, for one thing, the whole idea of a traditional date has kind of gone by the wayside in college, as far as I understand it. And so it's. What happened right? is, <laughs> I don't know if it ever really existed, but it seems to be dead and gone. There was one woman who met a guy in a bar and they got drunk and she went back to his house. And then she said that he tried to take off her clothes and rape her in the middle of the night. Um, Another woman is kind of flirting over text with the quarterback of the team, and she invites him to her house one night. She says she wasn't planning to have sex with him. She hadn't put on makeup or taken a shower. They were watching a movie. They started getting physical, and then he... Forcibly um, had sex with her. So that's the kind of situation or set of situations we're talking about.
0: There's so many huge issues embedded in this. There's the issue of alcohol and alcohol use on campus. There's the issue of college sports and the way that universities um, handle their uh, athletes um, as students. There's the issue of college justice versus um, the traditional, you know, the larger criminal justice system. How well does Krakauer balance all of these issues? Does he focus more on one than the other?
2: He is really angry at how these women were treated. And so I would say the strengths of the book are his looks at the police department and the prosecutor's office. Both were later investigated by the Department of Justice. And there's just really no question that they were belittling women, discouraging women from coming forward. And they seem to have the idea that there was a lot of false rape reporting. Um, which is just not true, statistically speaking. Most women who go to the police are not making it up. I would say that parts of the book that disappointed me was the lack of deep reporting about the culture of the University of Montana itself. So he doesn't talk to very many of the football players. You don't really get a sense of why these guys do what they do, why these women are with these guys. I felt like the women were sometimes just reduced to their victimhood rather than becoming kind of fully human characters with a variety of emotions and thoughts.
0: I want to go back to that case that you talked about with the woman in the movie, watching uh, the movie, and um, then uh, they had sex, which he said was consensual and she said was not. He gives the name Cecilia Washburn to the woman in question, and the guy in the situation was the football quarterback, Jordan Johnson. One of the things I found interesting is that um, the university— decided to expel Johnson, um, which was something the uh, football coach and athletic director fought against. But then the Montana Commissioner of Higher Education restored the quarterback to campus and to football. How much does he go into the the conflicts between the university and the way the state handles it?
2: Well, this is a really striking moment in the book where you feel like the University of Montana and its president tried to do what seemed to them the right thing. Um, They were trying to punish this quarterback, and, and in a university setting, when they're doing discipline, unlike in criminal court, they use a the standard of the preponderance of the evidence, and it seemed to them more likely than not that Jordan Johnson raped this woman. Krakauer tries to understand and delve into how the Montana High Commissioner of Education could have possibly overturned this result. He gets stymied um, because his request to try to get documents about communications regarding this decision gets blocked. And so That's a kind of ongoing question mark, Um, not Krakauer's fault at all, but an unresolved question about why this decision was made. You know, reading into it, one cannot help but note that once Jordan Johnson was restored to the University of Montana football team, they had another victorious season.
0: Emily, as a staff writer for the magazine, um, uh, you've written a lot about these issues and also as a, a graduate of Yale Law School, understand the legal issues how well does Krakauer portray the legal system and and is his understanding of how it works in these instances sophisticated or comprehensive? I
2: think he understands the workings of the legal system just fine and gets across the differences between a university procedure and a criminal justice proceeding. What I found a little frustrating is that My own sense from my reporting is that university officials right now are truly struggling over these disciplinary procedures. They are under new pressure from the Obama administration to take these cases seriously and investigate them. And these are hard cases. They're tricky. They don't often have a lot of clear sense of what to do. And I feel somewhat optimistic that in the next few years, the universities are going to try a bunch of new things and get better at this. But right now, it is kind of a mess across the country. And I don't think Krakauer really, um, it didn't feel to me like he appreciated how much some schools are trying and just how difficult this is.
0: In your review, you did fault Krakauer a bit for his reporting in that he didn't talk to the victims in at least one of the cases, the one that we just talked about with Johnson and Washburn, or many of the students at the universities or the prosecutors or police officers. Why was that? Does, it, does he explain the limitations of the reporting? I mean, I, and I ask specifically because in the wake of the Rolling Stone scandal, um, it seems like people would be very, very uh, careful with this.
2: Well, so to be fair to Krakauer, he did the reporting and writing for this book before the Rolling Stone story broke. And I think the press and nonfiction writers have had a real revisiting of what our norms should be about reporting stories of campus sexual assault in the wake of the mistakes that Rolling Stone made. Krakauer says that he tried to interview all the victims and assailants. You know, I think probably some people wanted to talk to him and some people didn't. The police and the prosecutors and the university officials in Mont- in Missoula have said that he didn't try to get in touch with them. Mm-hmm. Krakauer said that he did, and they didn't want to talk to him. So I don't know how to resolve that dispute about his reporting. At this point, I would much prefer to read about campus sexual assault when these stories are told from multiple vantage points because they're complicated, and I think to really understand why sex can go so wrong at college and how we can make things better for students and help students make things better for themselves, we need to understand this from more than one point of view.
0: He calls the book Missoula. Why does he do that? Is it about the city? Is it a portrait of a place in the same way that Under the Banner of Heaven was? Does he think that Missoula has a particular problem with acquaintance rape, or is it typical of America?
2: You know, that is such a good question, and I struggle to answer it myself. It's a very aggressive move to call the book Missoula because it makes the town synonymous with this problem of campus sexual assault. And yet early on in the book, Krakauer points out that Missoula's reported rate of campus sexual assault is no different from any other town in the country. So there's this way in which I think he's legitimately faulting Missoula for these problems that the police and the prosecutors were having, that the Department of Justice looked into, but he also is kind of making the town symbolic for what is really a national um, issue and a national ongoing struggle right now.
0: You point out that um, his other books, especially Into Thin Air and Into the Wild, have this really interesting moral complexity about them, even though they're adventure stories. And this is a story of of rape, and obviously it's inherently complex. Does his ability to get into that, uh, all those nuances, carry through into
2: this book? I felt like they didn't quite carry through, but, you know, I think... My main feeling, and there are a lot of things I did like about this book, but my main feeling of disappointment had to do with um, the level of storytelling I mean into the air and into the, <laughs> into the wild are just riveting narratives; they pull you along. I loved reading those books. This book feels like it's a little hard to keep track of. There are all these different characters. There are parts that are a little repetitive. I feel like it wasn't edited that well, frankly. And I think that was um, made it feel like more of a chore to read than these other incredibly successful, terrific books that he has written in the past.
0: You mentioned that there are a number of things that you did really like about the book. What what are this book's strengths?
2: Well, one that I really want to give Krakauer credit for is that he shows just how ignorant and clumsy and even malevolent police and prosecutors can be when women come and report rape. That's important to expose on its own, and it also helps make the case for why universities according to the federal government, should be doing their own investigations and holding their own hearings to address this issue on campus. Because, you know, as much as we might like the police process to be a good one for victims, in a lot of places it's still not. And I think that helps bolster the case for why under federal law, schools need to make sure that there's equal access to education for women as well as men by adequately addressing these kinds of complaints and making sure that victims get support.
0: Well, he's obviously dealing with very timely issues in this book. Emily, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer for The Times Magazine. She is also the author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. And this week she reviews John Krakauer's new book, Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town. Greg Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new on the list?
4: Well, uh, new on the hardcover fiction list at number 12, there's a book called Beauty's Kingdom by a writer named A.N. Rocallore. And I'm going to uh, test your knowledge here. Do you, do you recognize who A.N. Rocallore is? I,
0: I failed your test.
4: Oh, she's Anne Rice in high erotic mode. Uh, about 20 years ago, she did a trilogy um, called the Sleeping Beauty trilogy. It was a, a bondage novels erotica based on the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale. And now, twenty years later, after Fifty Shades of Grey, after you know the the boom in erotica, she has returned to this story and written a fourth book. So it's now the Sleeping Beauty quartet. I'm trying um, to
0: figure out the plot. Like a Sleeping Beauty tied up while while asleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: it does start with her revival. She's not kissed by a suitor <laughs> in in her version. She becomes like a sex slave, and uh, it goes on from there. Obviously, yeah. Then at number eleven, I'm going to test your knowledge again. Do you know who Amanda Quick is?
0: I'm going to fail again.
4: Amanda Quick is really Jane Ann Krentz, the romance novelist uh, writing. I should have known that in historical romantic suspense mode, and she's got a new book called Garden of Lies, set in Victorian London. uh, New at number eleven. Then at number five, I'm going to test your knowledge again. Chloe Wofford. Tony Morrison. She was born <laughs> Chloe Wofford in Ohio, but her middle name is Anthony and she took the name Tony in college and Morrison is her married name from a short-lived marriage long ago. We all know her now as Toni Morrison. Her new novel, God Help the Child, enters the list at number five.
0: What happened with her last book? Where did that enter the list?
4: Oh. uh, So you fail
0: my test, (laughs) right?
4: I do. I fail your test. Uh, It no doubt hit the list. Um, She's been a bestseller going back at least to Beloved um, and certainly um, Oprah's attention to her during the first iteration of the book club. She's sold hundreds and thousands of copies of her books at this point. The Nobel Prize didn't hurt either.
0: And another Nobel Prize winner at number 4,
4: Greg Isles, not a Nobel Prize winner, has uh, the latest book in his Pen Cage series. It's called The Bone Tree. This is book five of the Pen Cage series, but it's really book two of kind of a trilogy that Greg Isles started. Uh, Greg Isles was in a terrible car crash several years back, and he kind of re-envisioned his whole career, his whole approach to writing. And he's, he's doing these very big books now. Um, the Bone Tree is 816 pages long. It follows another book, uh, Natchez Burning, that was also over 800 pages long.
0: Not originally written as Tweets. No. Okay.
4: These are books, um, basically, kind of an epic story of race and crime in the South. So, The Bone Tree, uh, the second book in this trilogy, new at number four.
0: And another not newcomer at number one?
4: Uh, Yeah, not a newcomer at all. David Baldacci uh, has a new book called Memory Man, new at number one.
0: And on nonfiction? (laughs)
4: Nonfiction, there are just two new titles this week. John Krakauer, also not a stranger to the bestseller list. He, of course, wrote Into the Wild and, um, you know, a number of other books after that. Has a book called Missoula, new at number four. That is a book looking at the phenomenon of date rape. Um, in, and we
0: talked about it earlier on the podcast with Emily Bazelon, who that, reviews it for us this week.
4: Exactly so. And uh, somebody that you have not talked to on the podcast, Dana Perino, um, new at number two. She, of course, used to be the White House press secretary under George W. Bush. She's now a co-host on the Fox News channel for their show The um, The Five. She is one of The Five. Um, she's got a new book called And the Good News Is... Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot kind of looking back at her life and um, politics and and uh, just kind of chatting about the state of the world that's new at number two all right thanks Greg thanks Pamela
0: remember there's more at nytimes.com slash books our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com thanks for listening for the New York Times I'm Pamela Paul